So welcome back to the Fat Boy Loss Show. Today I am speaking with Frida and we will get to it right after this. An important food, a healthy food, and a basic food that can be served in more than a hundred different ways. Hello and welcome to the Fat for Weight Loss Show. My name is Aaron and I am your host for today's episode. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, let me introduce myself. Firstly, I am from Australia, if you hadn't already guessed from the accent, and I run a ketogenic food blog called Fat for Weight Loss, found at fatforweightloss.com.au. And the aim of this podcast is to dig into the world of nutrition, fitness, and everything in between. I'm a nutritional therapist and an advanced sports exercise nutritional advisor. However, I'm not a doctor, so I cannot give you any medical advice. This also applies to any guests involved in this show. Please make sure you consult your doctor before making any changes to your diet or medication. You can find me on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram at Fat for Weight Loss for delicious keto recipes, meal plan videos, and drool-worthy food photography. So let's get right into it. So Frida, welcome to the Fat for Weight Loss Show. I am super excited to have you on today. Um, how has your day been going? Hey, thank you for having me. Um, my day has been going well so far. It's 6 p.m. here. It's What time is it over there? Uh, it's about 9 o'clock in the morning. So for me, it's a fantastic time to do a podcast. <laughs> I don't know about <laughs> you, but in the afternoon, you sort of like start to drop off and it's like, oh, I don't want to do a podcast now, but I don't know about you. <laughs> oh, it's fine. I'm here in my office so um, and nobody's around in lab, so I have I can be as loud as I can. <laughs> fantastic. Awesome. Well, um, so, you know, I usually start the podcast with maybe uh, a, a, something that people may not know about you, um, but I know that you've been greeting your friends recently with a particular um a particular device i guess could you could you could you sort of elaborate on that for us <laughs> sure so um unfortunately not all of my friends are keto and but they know my lifestyle so lately um i feel they've been trying to avoid me because uh they see me coming and if they're eating they tend to hide what they're eating because I start talking about, do you know what that does to your blood glucose? Mm. <laughs> um, so I'm definitely not the fun person to have around in parties. <laughs> right. And and so you've just recently uh, got a continuous blood glucose monitor that you've been able to, you know, sort of assess these different foods with. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. I have that in the back of my arm and I've been experimenting with different food groups and doing my best to post them on Instagram just so that people can see what happens. And it's been fun so far. Yeah, for, fun for yeah. me, but not for my yeah. friends. <laughs> <laughs> Has there been any uh, like big eye openers for you to say, oh, wow, I didn't know that that would actually spike my glucose so much and for so long? Actually, um, there's one that I still haven't really defined because I haven't um, isolated this particular food group. So it turns out that green bell peppers have been spiking my glucose and I've right. tried them in salads. I've tried them cooking with meat and for whatever reason, every time they're included in whatever meal, I see like a clear spike in my blood glucose. So I plan to try to eat them 
alone and then just make sure that there's nothing else uh, in my stomach then and see if I get the same response. And mm -hmm. I was talking to someone um, that I guess they've experienced something similar and it's possible that I am reacting to the nightshade group, which apparently bell peppers are part of. So that was definitely a surprise to me. Um, so that's one of the, what's one of the, the main surprises that I've gotten so far. Yeah, really interesting. And I guess, um, uh, you know, those, those nightshades, it, it might be interesting to monitor your heart rate at the same time, because generally if you're allergic to something, your heart rate will go up about 10 beats per minute too. Um, that could be something to add to that experiment, but <laughs> I will leave that one with you. <laughs> um, but for, for everyone listening to this podcast, can you tell us a little bit about you, um, uh, you know, what, what studies you've done, uh, you know, just some of the stuff that you've been doing recently as well? Sure. Um, so I am an MD-PhD student, so I'm studying to get my uh, medical degree, and I am also uh, studying to get a PhD in neuroscience. And my research focuses on epilepsy. Um, specifically, I work with genetic mouse models, and I study different dietary therapies, including, obviously, the ketogenic diet. Um, I believe that this is actually how I started um, becoming become interested in the ketogenic diet. I just kept reading about its benefits. And um, so now I feel that I have this like personal investment in my research, which makes it a lot more fun for me to do. Um, mm. So I've been at this point, I've been um, following a ketogenic diet or low carb diet um, since I'd say it's been over two years. Um, and I haven't gone back to my old way, so. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. And uh, and so, what what are what are some of the changes that you've seen along that way? And and you know, maybe what are some of the optimizations you've made along the way? Because two years for someone like a lot of people want to start a ketogenic diet and be done with it in eight weeks and be at their goal weight and and that's done. But but you know, what are, what are some of the the longer lasting changes? I know that you've. Uh, been incorporating it with your exercise like cycling and strength training and those types of things have you seen um, a lot of other benefits in all areas of life or has it just been dietary oh um, I've seen a lot of benefits and a lot of aspects of my daily life so I feel like I kind of have to explain another reason why I was drawn into changing my nutrition um, first of all I uh, I think I've heard first heard about this diet used for performance and uh by listening to joe rogan's podcast with dr dominic d'agostino oh, i feel yeah, like yeah. a lot of people can identify with this um so that led me down a rabbit hole into reading about it um and uh this was actually a little before i started my research and uh ar around that time um i was eating you know regular uh athletic bodybuilder, whatever diets, you know, your chicken breast, your broccoli, your rice. Um, but I was already experimenting with uh, intermittent fasting. So I was, you know, skipping breakfast and just eating within a window of time. And I was monitoring how my performance in the gym was affected. Um, but another thing that I was also struggling with at the time was um, I had this chronic fatigue and I was always sleepy during the day and I was actually getting through um, depression that had been diagnosed during my medical uh, my medical courses. So um, I had been receiving treatment 
and I felt that I wasn't getting better. So after listening to this podcast and hearing about this, um, you know, changes in performance and reading more about it, I read several accounts from other people that said that it really helped them stabilize their mood. So I decided to, you know, just do more research, prepare, uh, come up with like a list of uh, food and to buy from the grocery store. And I just went all in. I cut out carbs and obviously like everyone that starts a ketogenic diet, they just start with what they hear others Mm. start with. So, Mm. you know, you do your, your eggs, your bacon, um, bread is the enemy, that kind of stuff. (laughs) And so obviously it was a lot of trial and error. Um, and, uh, I quickly, one of the first things that I started noticing, um, other than like the weight loss, which I feel a lot of people come into, come to the ketogenic diet for the weight loss, but they stay Mm. because they notice a lot of other improvements in their life. Um, like mental clarity. That was definitely something that I started experiencing almost within the week. Um, I used to have really bad um, uh, postprandial crashes after eating. So, you know, that feeling that I used to get after eating like a large bowl of pasta, you just want to nap. (laughs) And uh, because like I said, I was struggling with uh, just chronic fatigue and um, to the point where I even had to get like a sleep study done because my doctor was kind of concerned that I had some form of narcolepsy, which uh, I don't know if you know what that means, but it's essentially when you lose control um, and you fall asleep in the most, um, even in situations that you're definitely not supposed to fall asleep, like uh, driving. And uh, yeah, so I had definitely been struggling with that for a while. And I quickly realized that switching into a ketogenic diet um, helped me have a lot more energy during the day. And I just felt focused. And um, I, you know, you also start realizing that you go into accidental fasts. It's like, oh, it's 4 p.m. I haven't eaten anything, but I'm fine, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it's really good. And, you know, when you uh, lower your carbohydrates down enough, your body can just switch over to burning stored body fat as but as opposed to burning the fat that you've ingested and that's the that, that's one of the greatest things about the ketogenic diet and probably why people's moods and energy levels are so stable is because there's no there's no crash like if you're if you're looking at the amount of glucose or the amount of uh, glycogen your body can actually hold and use it's it's relatively small compared to the amount of fat that you hold on your body um and so you were talking about where you started off with ketogenic diet, where you start eating bacon and butter and you know bread's the enemy and, and whatnot. But but uh, have there been any changes along the way that you've made specifically with regards to uh, different types of food? So do you find you've uh, like did you end up in, uh, tracking macros? Did you do you end up tracking net carbs or total carbs? Or were there any things along the way that you helped? Uh, that sorry that helped you. Um, uh, sort of make the ketogenic diet into now a lifestyle because you've been doing it for two years. Like that's that's sort of the lifestyle <laughs> period of it. Um, you know, what are some of the things that have just made it really easy for you? Um, I feel that uh, obviously there was a lot of trial and error. You know, I uh, especially at the beginning, I I'm glad I didn't actually go through what the, what people call the keto flu, uh, which I don't like that term. It's just carbohydrate withdrawal. 
That is what really means. Um, because I was already cycling carbs. Uh, I, like, there would be days where I'd eat very little carbs, uh, obviously not ketogenic, but I wouldn't be eating like 300 grams of carbs that day. So I feel that really helped me transition into the ketogenic uh, diet lifestyle. Um, so yeah, I first started by just cutting out the obvious carb, the, the obvious carbs like rice, bread, and whatnot. But you do at the beginning, um, and I feel a lot of people can uh, identify with this. You you continue to crave sweets, so you start experimenting with like um, erythritol and all of these uh, sugar alcohols and keto treats and fat bombs, and. Um, when you're someone that's gone through eating disorders or like has an unhealthy relationship with food or had it at some point, that can, I feel that can easily spiral into um, overeating. So you can start overeating these like delicious fat bombs and whatnot. So it's one of the things that I encountered at the beginning that um, was kind of like a hip, hiccup in, in my you know journey to improving my uh, my diet in general. So I stopped incorporating uh, these uh, artificial sweeteners. Um, I was also learning about different cuts of meat. Um, I quickly realized that chicken breast was not going to cut it because there's very <laughs> little fat in there. Yeah. Yeah. And um, also, you you start to learn a lot more about the quality of the food. You know, you don't you stop looking at meat uh, as just like general beef, you start looking into the sources of the beef. Is this was this um, cow fed corn? Was it fed grass? Was it grass fed the whole life? So you start thinking about um, ways to improve your uh, just your ketogenic approach, and I think that definitely took me a few months to kind of pin down because. I feel that the simplicity of the approach that I have, which is a lot more like keto carnivore, um, it just becomes easy to, that you know that, oh, I can I can live off my eggs, my liver, my beef, my fish, um, sometimes chicken. Um, not always. It's just not as exciting. But I think it definitely took a few months to, to get uh, at that point. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does, yeah. And um, that was something that I was really surprised by when I first started the ketogenic diet because I came from a background of being a nutritional therapist and I thought, you know, all of these people are just so focused on macros and whilst macros are important, there's a whole side of micronutrients that was just being completely ignored. Um, and, and so when I came into it, <laughs> I, I would do uh, Instagram posts about, you know, this is what the keto diet looks like and then this is what the keto diet actually is. But that that was sort of a bit polarizing because people are like, well, they're all keto because they're all low carb. And it's like, yes, but there are certain nutrients and certain things that come in other grass-fed, um, pasture-raised animals uh, or, you know, and 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 particularly with vegetarian diets as well there's a lot of people around the world who do eat a vegetarian diet and so it's trying to get instead of because a vegetarian diet can be very processed and vice versa you, you know there's a carnival diet that can be very processed as well but if you have those two and you have or if you have the carnivore approach uh, you can definitely get some uh, a, a crazy amount of micronutrients and um, you know being in that keto macro stage uh, you know with those 
those a little bit more expensive cuts of meat, but generally uh, maybe sourced in a better place and, you know, the animals have been treating well. Uh, I used to work as a butcher for about, uh, I don't know, three years. <laughs> um, oh, nice. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so, you know, you really understand the difference between here in Australia, we've got Coles and Woolworths, which are like big chains. I guess sort of like Walmart would be in, in, in America. But uh, I worked in a local butcher and the difference in quality of meat was phenomenal and maybe the price was only 20% more. And you get to that point where you go, well, how much is my health worth? Like if I put 20% more into food, that exactly. is good quality food, um, it, it's going to give me six times more benefit than, than – yeah. and so it's like a, it's a bit of a disproportion. But I know, I, I know I, we're probably speaking to <laughs> the people who can afford that type of thing, but for the people who have big families and they're just trying to feed everyone, uh, it's a little bit different. But, yeah, I do totally agree that – that nutritional value of the different types of foods and um and you know what you were saying before about the carb cravings that's that's uh, uh that's something that's so prevalent in the in the ketogenic space but no one's talking about it everyone just goes oh here's a keto cheesecake and I, you know maybe i'm part of the problem but um, <laughs> you do post <laughs> delicious food though <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and people love it you know like it's it, it influences get in, in engagement from things that people love but unfortunately like the showing really healthy food doesn't get as much engagement so that doesn't work but but what i try and do is i've i've created the five-day carb cleanse where i get people going from being carb dependent or at least like coming on and off the, the keto bandwagon and then get them into a to a point where they're stable enough to actually progress through the ketogenic diet and a lot of that is actually neuroscience because your brain your brain will play tricks on you with regards to carbs have you found that you know studying uh, getting a, or, you know going down the road of neuroscience has really helped you um, either avoid the carb cravings or at least understand what's going on in your brain when those things occur yeah, so I feel it's definitely contributed to uh, my understanding of the ketogenic diet, um, especially with a lot of the attention that um, metabolic syndrome and then neurodegenerative diseases as uh, caused by like metabolic uh, crises in your neurons, that's been that's become a lot more or people are talking about that more. Um, but that's been recent, like Back then when I started the ketogenic diet, um, and uh, my bad, I didn't really talk about macros, but I wasn't tracking at all. I was just eating peanut butter. and. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but yeah. in one time that I did track, I found myself eating up to like 250 grams of fat. And I remember showing that to my friends and they're like, oh my gosh, you're going to die. <laughs> Which obviously didn't happen. But um, see, having a background in neuroscience, um, what a lot of people don't realize is that uh, neurotransmitters like serotonin, which is uh, um, the neurotransmitter that my lab studies a lot because it plays a role in a lot of things and a lot of important functions in your body. Um, 90 something percent, 97, 98 percent of your whole body serotonin is actually found outside the brain. And actually serotonin alone, whatever serotonin is made in your gut um, because that's where a lot of the serotonin is made, doesn't actually cross to your brain. Um, it's only the precursors like tryptophan and whatnot. And, you know, you, we get a lot of tryptophan from our diet. So something else that's been, um, that's been talked about lately is the role of the microbiome. 
and mm. mood disorders and um, and health in general. And there's a there's been some uh, papers that have been looking at how different changes like high fat. Uh, diets versus low carb versus ketogenic and, and whatnot, and of course this this has been done in mice, uh, which I I tend to kind of cringe upon that because mice have a very different uh, microbiome need than what we do, and also if only you could see what these diets look like, like it's nowhere near what we are eating, <laughs> but right. um, yeah, like having an understanding of how um, things that you eat and how your uh, gut microbiome influences the neurotransmitters in your brain, it makes sense that um, the way or what you eat affects how you're feeling mentally and how you're feeling emotionally and and whatnot. So um, there's also been a lot of talk about how sugar, um, oh, well, this has actually been known for a while, but sugar is known to cause similar changes in the brain. Um, that involve dopamine that look a lot like what you see when somebody is, um, you know, uh, taking cocaine or heroin. So there clearly seems to be uh, like an actual mechanism that you can trace that shows how sugar can be very addicting for people. So that's why um, I don't like the the term uh, keto flu because it really is carbohydrate um, withdrawal. So it's not just like um, physiological where you're getting, you know, the foggy brain and whatnot, but it's also emotional. You know, you a lot of people that are emotional eaters, uh, what do they go for? They don't go for like a salad. They go for cookies. They go for ice cream. They go for sugar because they're, they want to get that um, rush of dopamine that even though it only lasts a few minutes, it's kind of like a drug and it makes them feel better. So... Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And um, uh, you know, in that state, a lot of people, when they when they open the cupboard and they're looking for you know those fast acting carbs, uh, it's often very urgent in their brain to to actually do that. You know, um, <laughs> the cravings don't don't necessarily come on very slowly like hunger would. And you go, oh, I can put that away now. You know, carb cravings or you know sugar cravings, um, they just they come on so quickly. And for a lot of people, it's really hard to, hard to ignore. But understanding the process, and yeah, like you said, there's a lot of things that are going on in our, in our um, gut that actually, uh, a, a thing comes to mind where it's like, uh, food can either be the um, the world's best medicine or the slowest form of poison. Oh yeah. Um, and and so you know, it, it, it may not be just one meal that. That you know, because some people they get really they get really uh, upset that they've they've had one keto or non keto meal, and it's ruined their entire week, and that sort of spirals out of control. But uh, you know, the the reality is of is that if you can stack up more more of the good foods than you can of the bad foods, then you will end up making better choices in the long run because you won't be so fatigued, you won't be uh, in that carb depleted state. Uh, that you know gives us all these the brain fog and all that sort of stuff but um, something that I wanted to tie back in so you're doing uh, your PhD in neuroscience and you're studying epilepsy Um, and so you mentioned before about how you know serotonin is created in the gut uh, in the microbiome Um, but you were saying that uh, you know there's a lot involved with metabolism as well and how that affects the brain and so epilepsy from my understanding because I'm I'm 
I have a very, very basic understanding of epilepsy, so excuse my um, poor knowledge. Um, but uh, you know what? What it has changed between you know nineteen twenties, where the ketogenic diet was so prevalent for epilepsy. What has changed between now and then in terms of this the study of epilepsy, and also you know the metabolism brain sort of connection there as well. Right. Um, yeah, you're correct. The ketogenic has been known for almost a century. And uh, it's interesting how we still, even though it's been around for like about a century, we still don't fully understand how it works. Um, and when this ketogenic diet was designed, um, it was designed to mimic the metabolic state of fasting, you know, the state of ketosis. That's where the term ketogenic comes from. Um, and this was working well until um, they made the first discovery of the first anti-epileptic drug, which I believe uh, was phenytoin. And of course, you know, when you give the doctor the option of like, um, how can we fix this uh, condition? Giving a pill is a lot easier than trying to change someone's lifestyle, right? So the all the efforts that were being done for research and understanding how the ketogenic diet was working, um, all of that focus was shifted towards the development of more uh, anti-epileptic drugs and anti-seizure medications. And that um, the ketogenic diet kind of became, um, was just not a popular option anymore because physicians just started giving um, these anti-epileptic drugs because um, it was easier for them. Um, and uh, so for a long time, there was not much research being done for uh, the ketogenic diet and the use of treatment uh, for epilepsy. Um, but around the, the year, I believe, 1980s, I don't know if you've heard of the Charlie Foundation. Um, so this foundation was founded by um, uh, the father of Charlie, and he um, was the one that brought, or, or that organization um, was the one that kind of brought the ketogenic diet back into uh, being a popular option because even though up to date we have, I believe, maybe 26 FDA-approved anti-seizure medications, wow. you still have like 30% of all epilepsy patients that don't respond to any of these drugs. So when you have these patients that have a lot of uncontrolled seizures, um, especially uh, ch children that have these um, epilepsies, as a parent, you're offered a few options. You're offered um, your child to undergo surgery, which is, you know, brain surgery is not, isn't, isn't, is not just whatever surgery. It's very, it comes with a lot of, of uh, potential dangers, you know. Um, then you, you also have the option of, in this case, the ketogenic diet. Um, and back in the day, uh, uh, this kid, Charlie, he was having a lot of seizures and, and they, and regardless of how many drugs they were trying to use in him, his seizures weren't being controlled. So it was not until they bumped into a doctor that talked about the ketogenic diet. And I believe his father also did a lot of his own research and found, uh, you know, um, papers on the ketogenic diet. And within a week... I believe this kid stopped having seizures. And so this, um, his obviously his family was very distressed and disturbed by that, the, how come physicians didn't bring this diet up before? 
you know, like my kid had been having seizures, several seizures a day. And the minute that they in, introduced this diet, like it just completely changed uh, the outcome of this kid. So that's a, that was around the 1980s. And ever since then, um, the ketogenic diet has regained some traction in for treating epilepsy. Um, but, and so did some of the research, you know, trying to understand how the, the ketogenic diet, um, you know, stops seizures. That's been something that has also uh, come back to the focus of a lot of, in this field, at least. Um, and if you ask me if I know how the ketogenic diet is preventing seizures, I can't actually give you an answer because there's probably many answers. And another thing to consider is that epilepsy is not one condition, you know, seizures can sometimes be uh, a, a symptom of another disease. You know, you have epilepsy that is caused by genetic mutations. You have epilepsy that um, starts after being in a traumatic uh, accident where you hit your head and you have a traumatic brain injury. It can happen from cancer. It can happen um, from a fever, you know, so there's a lot of causes uh, for epilepsy, and unfortunately, the ketogenic diet doesn't work for all. So that says that this is a multi-mechanism disease or condition, and you also have a multi-mechanism uh, treatment or intervention like the ketogenic diet. So tying it all back, um, it's been around for a long time, and we still don't understand it. But there's a few um, there's a few theories out there that may be able to explain how the ketogenic diet is working in the brain. Mm. Oh, that's fantastic. And, and, you know, for anyone who is listening and wondering uh, if they maybe have an epileptic child, uh, that you can definitely speak to your doctor about that uh, and get some information there. Um, is there any difference between doing the ketogenic diet for weight loss versus doing the ketogenic diet for epilepsy in terms of you know how, much, how many ketones you need in your blood or in your breath, all those types of things? Right. Um, so for for weight loss is uh, very different, and obviously there's less of a structure, and it can be tailored to the person. Um, but for weight loss, you want some you want uh, to achieve what is known as nutritional ketosis. And nutritional ketosis, I believe the threshold is somewhere between like 0.4 and um, maybe one millimolar. I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but when you are someone that's on a ketogenic diet for clinical purposes, whether it's epilepsy or whether it's, um, you know, keeping uh, or, or being treated for cancer, you want to have higher levels of ketones. And um, in order to achieve that, the ketogenic diet that is that tends to be prescribed by doctors is very, very high in fat compared to protein and, and obviously minimal to little carbohydrates. Like some of these um, prescribed diets that are sometimes given under supervision, like I've heard of of kids that have to, you know, monitor some of the carbohydrates that are in toothpaste just because that is what their doctor tells them. And, and the reason that they do that this is still a thing is because, like I said, we don't really understand how it works. But um, the interesting thing is that there's been other dietary therapies like the modified Atkins diet. That isn't always a ketogenic diet. It has high fat, yes, but there's a lot more protein involved. 
Yeah, that's been effective in some cases that have epilepsy, like in some epilepsy cases. And it's also uh, been effective just in the general population that wants to um, lose weight. Uh, along those lines, you also have something like the low glycemic index diet that it's also, um, it's not very low carb, but the sources of carbs or carbohydrates are important here. So going back to like, you know, my continuous glucose monitor, the, the people following that diet, they want to consume carbs that don't cause massive spikes in blood glucose. And they normally have to you know, consume a bunch of uh, vegetables and um, certain fruits that don't have a large glycemic index like berries. Um, certain uh, grains can sometimes uh, have um, a very, they don't have like sharp increases in glucose. And uh, we've seen that that diet also helps in some cases for epilepsy. So mm. what used to be thought before, you know, when you have the, the initial clinical diet was you need a ratio of fat to protein and carbs of like seven to one. That's wow. essentially, that's almost like downing lard. <laughs> and <Yeah>. it's not <laughs> a very sustainable way of, you know, of, of keeping up with this diet. And right now I actually have some samples from these uh, shakes that a lot of these pediatric kids are given. These have a specific ratio of fat to protein and they are recommended to be given um, to these kids as just to supplement to their diet and I guess that's just to like maintain uh, a certain degree of ketosis um, but that's just because that is what seems to sometimes correlate with seizure control um, but that, uh, that, that's been challenged recently, and that's actually something that my lab has been challenging as well, um, that it's not all dependent on the ketones or the ketone bodies formed by the ketogenic diet. This is also dependent on the ingredients. So this is all going back to what you eat is very important. Um, it's not, and it, it's also like a message to everyone out there that's constantly checking their blood ketones. It's like you're not obtaining all of the benefits from the degree of ketosis that you're in. Like a lot of it is removing certain ingredients from your diet and including other ingredients. You know, you're affecting inflammation. You are affecting other things in, in your body that are not always, you know, correlated with uh, with ketone bodies. So there's a lot there to unpack. <laughs> oh, definitely, yeah. Um, and, and there's certain food groups that people will, uh, you know, I guess put on put and say like this is this is causing inflammation and you know rightly so um, and I do remember looking into the ingredients of some of the 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 um, products specifically made for epileptics that were you know yes they were ninety percent fat or whatever it was but it was all canola oil yeah and I've was, seen that you know, too yeah it's just it's yeah. bad but that 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 just says uh that just shows how. Um, we don't really have like a good idea of like what is the yeah. best approach for this diet, and that's why people say it's not sustainable. It's like, well, I mean, if you if you're do following this way, um, it's definitely not sustainable, especially for mm -hmm. a child that's in development. You know, you have to you're gonna have to supplement with vitamins because these shakes and, and this particular diet isn't doesn't fulfill the requirements of a, of a kid that's you know going through development. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very interesting. Um, and so, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I know that uh, Brian from Keto Evangelist, he's, uh, his son has epilepsy and he, uh, you know, took him on to a ketogenic diet and they've been doing it ever since. But he was the same, like he, his, his son was having, you know, multiple seizures a day and then now he's down to one every every now and then, you know, maybe once or twice a year. Um, so it's it's fantastic. But I guess, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of different... Uh, versions of the ketogenic diet as you were saying you know the ketogenic diet or the standard or the you know very strict ketogenic diet or the modified atkins approach or whatnot and i find that um, a lot of athletes or people who are doing a lot of exercise tend to be able to tolerate more um, protein and so uh, i know that you've been doing a lot of cycling and a lot of endurance activity but also strength uh, work do you find that um uh, you know, maybe what are some of the common mistakes you see when when people come f- from an, a standard diet with you know high carbs or whatever down to a low carb or a ketogenic diet when it comes to those different types of exercise, specifically, I guess, with cycling. Um, well, one of the one of the first things that um, I recall having to fix myself is making sure I'm consuming my sodium. <laughs> Because as you, as, as people may know, you know, when you cut out carbs, you, um, at the beginning, when, while you're still adapting, the, the, deg- the degree of glycogen repletion after exercise is not as fast. So because of that, and because you're not, um, you know, eating carbs, you're not retaining as much fluid as you normal or as you used to. And um, because another another thing that we've also been indoctrinated in is like, oh, sodium is too much sodium is bad. So for a long time, uh, I remember back in the day, I was also avoiding salt, like adding salt to my food. So that's definitely something that I had to change, um, especially with sports like cycling, where you sweat a lot. Um, I definitely had to sometimes add salt to my drinking water or add electrolytes or just add a bunch of salt. And I feel that also contributes to how people feel like crap when they're going through like carbohydrate withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that I've noticed that people, um, I don't know, people tend to get impatient. And so when they realize or when they notice that their performance um, has been suffering ever since they changed um, their diet, they, they kind of revert back. Uh, they don't wait. They don't get. They don't allow enough time for your body to adapt because this is a, a massive metabolic shift that you're going through. You know, it, it's not something that you'll get in one, two, three weeks. Um, it sometimes, it, I, I believe for me, it took like I'd say two months, uh, three months maybe before I started seeing my numbers go back up in the gym while lifting. Um, I definitely felt that doing high intensity intervals. Um, you know, hit training. I definitely felt uh, a lot more tired at the beginning. Um, in terms of endurance, endurance actually, um, you know, once you become adapted, it's rel- it's a lot easier, I feel, to be on a ketogenic diet. You rely less on, you know, those little goo gels. Um, but yeah, like what I said, I feel that the biggest mistakes that people make is they don't add enough salt or enough electrolytes to their food or their or, or you know, they're drinking water and they don't allow enough time to adapt, um, which is another issue when people kind of go back to the studies that have been done on, oh, this this is why these low-carb diets are not good for athletes. But then you look at the study groups and it's like, oh, they allowed only four weeks of this, mm, yeah. <laughs> quote, ketogenic diet. 
And mm. this is all also like based on surveys. Like they're just, you know, so there's, there's a lot of, of, um, there's a lot to consider there. You know, you need to al- allow plenty of time to adapt and you have to be patient. Like, mm. I feel we we're kind of live in a society of like that's constantly looking or searching for instant gratification um and people just are just too impatient but i feel that if people just allowed enough time to adapt um it's definitely worth it and i can say that i i've never been in better shape um uh, my life like i i've been doing well at the gym i've been doing a lot more endurance stuff i've been doing um just, I feel like I can do a lot more than what I was able to do two years ago. Mm, yeah, that's so awesome. And, you know, uh, for uh, I used to get a lot of questions where people would come to me and say, look, I want to run a marathon or I'm doing a, a century ride or whatever it is. Um, I've got four weeks until the race. Do you think I should do a ketogenic approach? And I was like, no, you should not. You should definitely not because that is not enough time to adapt. And as you were saying before, like the electrolytes, the, the fat adaption phase really takes a long time and i find that even for a lot of people who maybe ride in a group or uh, maybe run with a club or something you actually need to back off and you need to back off your high intensity training and start Mm -hmm. training at that lower intensity so you can get your body to actually start burning fat there's a great book by mark sisson and i think brad kerns and it's called endurance yes i think i think i know yeah, that, that book is fantastic to read if if you are someone who's listening and wants to get into the ketogenic approach for uh, endurance activities, then uh, th- then that book's great. But generally, you know, a lot of people who uh, are doing these types of rides or runs or uh, exercise aren't doing it for uh, – they're not partaking in races. They're not um, doing it as a, as a competitive sport, I guess. Uh, they just want to go out with their friends and, you know, get a good time or get a good Strava segment or something. Um, yeah. And uh, to do that, you don't need to be a high-carb athlete, you know. Uh, and uh, a lot of the cyclists I used to ride with, they were so scared of not going for a ride every single day because they were scared of getting fat. And you go, well, d- doesn't your diet sort of – doesn't that indicate that you're doing something wrong with your diet if you're not um, able to maintain a good body composition exercise aside, you know. Um, so that was something uh, interesting that I found. But – yeah, the, the the amount of salt that you need is is so so great, and also magnesium as well. Because oh, yeah. as you deplete yourself of that glycogen, um, not only do you have less water on your body uh, to start with, so you'll find that you might become more dehydrated as you as as you progress into that carbohydrate depleted state. But it's only because you you don't have enough sodium, you don't have enough magnesium, you know, calcium, potassium. Uh, to to actually hold that water in your cells and and to use it into the mitochondria um, and so yeah I mean the, those electrolytes are so important but yeah it's it's really it's really interesting you say that it took you about two or three months to actually adapt and and uh, you know I I found the same um, I I think I'm someone who generally tolerates carbohydrates really well and so for me to go into a ketogenic space uh, has been really interesting to see the, the differences because I know that I I can <laughs> I, I, I sit at a very high heart rate when I do endurance activities um, generally because I'm trying to push the barrier or you know get a better time than last time um, and so for, for a lot of people out there it might be disappointing for the few the next couple of races or events that you do because you may not get as fast a time but if you want to look back at your goals it's like do you want to get a faster time or do you want to be a healthy person and so 
what does it take to be in those different categories? And so I think, yeah, doing it without carbs is definitely way, way better. Yeah, and like, see, there's different strategies. Like, I don't know if you know who Zach Bitter is, but yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so he, the way he he wants, um, he recently had a, a podcast episode with um, the Human Outliers or Performance Outliers, and he was talking about his strategy, and which I think that was one of the one of the the strategies that I read when I was preparing to transition to the diet, actually. Um, and it's something that I apply myself. Um, in like my personal training so he looks like he like cuts out carbs and he's training like almost in a zero carb state and then when he's getting closer to his race day he starts reintroducing carbs slowly um only for the like a few days before his race and he does consume carbs during the race but then again we're talking about like 50 plus mile races and he also holds like the world record so (laughs) what he's doing is definitely working for him um and the carbs that he consumes during his race um are is like a pure clover honey or something like that because they're like just fast access fast acting carbohydrates and what I've also done myself, like I, I've gone on fasted rides, like literally just water and sometimes coffee before, and I feel fine. I don't feel like I bonk. And that's another thing that I feel you can also speak for. Like I haven't um, actually experienced bonking in um, a long time. And I actually <laughs> recently did a half marathon and I did the half marathon being, you know, keto. And I did not feel like I needed to like feel with goo gels or anything at any point, but um, or even I was even able to sprint to the end when I was getting closer. Um, wow! So it's it's a stre- it's it's obviously somewhat it's like it has to be tailored to what you want to do. So when you introduce cars in the middle of the race, you don't actually like store them. You you burn them like super quickly Mm. so that's why people say that when they've been become fully fat adapted and they introduce things like uh super starch or or carbohydrates during a workout a particularly intense one or during a race it feels like rocket fuel because you use it right away and as soon as it burns out you go quickly back into burning ketones so it's um it's all about strategy and you have to allow like plenty of time to adapt to it. I probably wouldn't try something new in the midst of a race. I would probably first try <laughs> training um, yeah. and then see if that actually works for you. Mm, mm, yeah, it's it's so important to do those pre, pre-race or pre-event um, training tactics because you, you do not want something that one, you don't like the taste of or something that's going to not work for you and you've just blown, your, blown everything apart. Um, but yeah, I had Zach Bitter on the podcast. I think it was like episode four or five or something um but he just recently broke the 100 mile yep um uh world record yeah and so like that it's it that is no small feat and if he's doing it in this particular state where he is fat adapted enough to be able to do the race but then adds carbohydrates and trickles them in as needed then it's a yeah it's a fantastic approach and there's another approach too where as a um, as a guy called Thomas Delauer, uh, and he has a big YouTube channel, um, but he talks about the post carbohydrate uh, post exercise carbohydrates, where you can actually ingest a certain amount of carbohydrates to replenish your glycogen storage very quickly. Um, that 
will keep you in a state of ketosis as well. So there's two pathways. I think there's the S-glute-1 pathway and the glute-5, I'm not sure, but one will take glucose and one will take fructose. And there's two buses. You can only fill those buses with enough um, energy that, that it requires. And then after that, you're actually back into ketosis. So it's it's really interesting to start playing with these different approaches. And I know Tara Garrison, Coach Tara Garrison on Instagram, she's been doing a lot of things where she's incorporating carbohydrate stages in mm-hmm. with, with keto as well. But it gets tricky because you need to be able to do this with either a nutritionist or um, a coach of some sort. You, you probably shouldn't be doing this by yourself. And if you think that you need carbohydrates, you don't because that you just yeah, you just really don't need them. If you are in a particular circumstance where you think you might need them, maybe speak to your coach, maybe speak to your nutritionist, um, and then they can help you incorporate those in uh, you know, in a, in a particular instance, but yes, definitely being able to use them specifically in in a in a race or in a, in a time where you need them um, is not is not going to ruin your entire ketogenic diet. That it'll, they'll be burnt off before you even get to the finish line. So, yeah, really interesting to to tap into that info. Um, and I think that's something I'm probably going to more uh, focus on in the next few weeks. Is <laughs> is sort of like how far can you push that? Um, but yeah, really interesting. And so. There, towards the end of the podcast, I like answering. Uh, sorry, I like, I like asking a few quick questions. Uh, these are, you know, like particular foods, different things you can and can't live without. Um, but first of all, uh, blood ketone meter or breath ketone meter, and maybe what are some of the differences that you've found? Ah, uh, so I started with the blood ketone meter, of course, like everyone, but. When I started understanding the biochemistry a little better, um, I realized that blood ketones aren't always reflective of what's going on, like what the big picture is. So first of all, uh, for those that don't know, the ketone meters for, uh, you know, where you prick your finger and get the blood, it is measuring beta hydroxybutyrate, which is just one of the three main ketone bodies that we have. Initially, as fats are being broken down um, into fatty acids, and then you have acetoacetate. Acetoacetate then breaks down into acetone, which is what you exhale and what breath ketone meters detect. And it also breaks down to beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is what sort of stays in the blood uh, and is what these blood ketone meters. So breath ketones and blood ketone levels, and let's add a third one, urine ketones they don't always um, correlate with each other. So if you have high blood levels of uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate, some people, I don't know, get the tingles when they see that high number. They're like, oh, yes, I'm doing something right. Um, That isn't always the case. Um, I find that, and a lot of people are starting to show this, um, they their ketone levels are not that high anymore after they've been on a ketogenic diet for a long time. And mm-hmm. what's been starting to show is that this is because the person already knows how to use ketones. So their body only produces the exact, or not exact, nothing's really exact, but the appropriate amount of ketones for their level of activity. So at this point, I like going with breath ketones better because that is actually an indication of you burning through, uh, you know, fat as fuel. Because if you are doing that and you check your blood ketones, it isn't always reflective. Like there's, that just shows that, okay, well, I have beta-hydroxybutyrate in in my blood, cool. But the breath acetone that is being um, detected, that is actually showing that you're actively burning through fat, 
creating these this acetoacetate molecule, and that is breaking down into beta-hydroxybutyrate and the acetone that you are exhaling. So I personally stopped buying uh, the little strips for measuring blood ketones. Um, I, I guess the last one that I bought was when I did that uh, long seven-day fast as an experiment that was measuring that and measuring blood glucose. But now I measure uh, breath acetone. Um, and that's that's what I'm probably going to be sticking to for like performance uh, purposes. Yeah, that's really interesting because I've also been doing a little bit of experimentation between blood and breath. And I found that my blood ketones are always much, much lower than my breath ketones. Yep. Um, and I did a 24, no, sorry, I did a 12, 22 hour fast and I was back into ketosis within 14 hours in my breath. But according to my blood ketones, um, I was only at 0 0.4 or 0 0.5. Yeah. And in theory, like, so that's just on the edge of nutritional ketosis, but my breath ketones were 1.4. Um, so very interesting. And, the, you know, pe people get very confused between the difference of uh, blood ketones and breath ketones. So, so thank you for explaining the differences there. Um, and I was always under the impression as well that the breath ketones would go away, like keto breath would go away. Um, but I guess not because if you're creating, um, you know, if you're breaking down those fat molecules into the different pathways and you're excreting acetone, mm -hmm. um, that that's always going to be there, isn't it? Yeah, but there's actually another reason um, that I'll, I'll just quickly explain. So you also have a microbiome in your mouth. And mm -hmm. just as your gut flora that changes with changes in your diet, you're not consuming as many carbohydrates. So the bacteria that normally exist in your mouth that usually have a high uh, level of amylase, that is the enzyme that breaks down the, you know, the sucrose in your diet and the carbohydrates, mm -hmm. That is obviously not, um, th there's less bacteria that are, um, that depend on that glucose. So your, your mouth flora also changes. So now you have this to also keep into account uh, of possibilities of like maybe why your breath, uh, or why you have keto breath. Um, so that's another thing that, for example, next time that you go to the dentist, you may want to make sh mention it, and then they'll tell you, oh, that may explain why you have extra tartar or something like that, because your uh, mouth flora yeah. does change as well. Yeah, really interesting. Interesting stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, so those those different types, if you're looking at maybe uh, you know testing your ketones, then uh, I, I did a video a long time ago on just a... a, a, a it's like an alcohol breathalyzer that you can get on eBay yeah. for really cheap. Um, and they measure acetone. And so there's two different types of sensors. If you get stopped by the police and they say, uh, can you give me a specimen of your breath uh, for, you know, we're going to test if you've been drinking, that the difference between the two meters is quite significant because you won't be picked up for um, alcohol in your breath because the, the ones that police use are actually fuel conductor sensors, whereas the... The, the other sensors that, you know, the cheap breathalyzers use are called semiconductor sensors and they, they pick it up in a different way. And so, no, you won't be stopped by the police if, uh, if you're on a ketogenic diet thinking that you've been drinking all day. Um, <laughs> it, it, there's two different types of sensors there. Uh, so just to clear that one up for anyone. Oh, interesting, um, yeah. So um, another quick question. Do you track any type of carbohydrates and do you track net or total? Um. I track total. Um, 
I when I go strict into like a uh, like a prep or something, I do track religiously. I feel that's how I have control, and it personally doesn't stress me. I just feel that I'm in under more control. Um, at the beginning, I did track net because I wanted a little more, you know, leeway and, and wanted to get my sugar alcohols in and whatnot. But now I just do total, <laughs> yep. total carbs. Total carb. And is there a particular app that you find really easy to use? I like Chronometer. I, I really yeah, like their too, breakdown actually. of like nutrients and stuff. And they have a large database. And so, yeah, I've been, I've been using Chronometer for a while. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and if you ever get, I think it's the premium version where they can suggest yeah. foods, mm-hmm. yeah, and it's always just liver. Yeah, yes, I noticed that. <laughs> and I contacted them, and I was like, "Why do you keep suggesting liver?" And they're like, "It's the nutrient dense. It's the most nutrient dense foods. Why wouldn't we suggest it to you?" It's like, okay, I better start eating some liver. <laughs> really interesting one there. Yeah. Um, if you if you could only pick one strength based exercise, what would it be? Ooh. Um I think it'd be deadlifts. Oh, okay. Yep. Yep. It's a, it is a common answer. And I think that a lot of people, um, maybe underestimate the power of deadlifts and that's really cool. It's the movement. That's just essential to everyday movement. That hip hinge is just necessary for, to be able to move and continue to move when you get older. So. Mm, mm, yeah, really important. And it's also important when you're moving house. So I've just, I've just moved house. Oh yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and turns out that 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 boxes full of books can be extremely heavy um and so i remember moving into the place you know three years ago that we were moving out of and you know these boxes seemed relatively light compared to when i was moving them in because i because i've been doing a lot of deadlifts at the at the gym and so increasing that value is really important because yes if you want to move house fantastic fantastic (laughs) (laughs) um uh, do you have a book or a podcast that has recently inspired you? I know that you were talking about the um, the Dominic D'Agostino podcast a, a while back, and also the the health um, the performance. You know, the one with health performance um, outliers. I think or human performance. That's it. Yeah. Yes. Um, and do you do you have any other podcasts or books that have recently inspired you? Oh man! Um, so I listen to a lot of podcasts, um, yours included, and. I particularly enjoy um, The Drive with Peter Atia because he, I love nerding out with whatever he posts because he goes a lot in depth, not just in um, nutrition, uh, but also just in general performance, um, advances in like uh, the medical field, which I'm very obviously very interested in because as a future physician, I'd like to incorporate a more wholesome holistic approach you know instead of like starting to prescribe pills i wanted to look at the big picture so i feel i can get a lot of information and a lot of updates from that um particular podcast um as far as books go um you mentioned you recommended a book and i this is not the most recent book that i've read or or listened to but uh for anyone that is very interested in like exercise and endurance and low carbohydrate performance um obviously jeff bullock's and stephen finney's book the art and science of low carbohydrate performance that is a Mm -hmm. definitely a a must for anyone that's interested in you know uh, ketogenic diets and performance and whatnot Mm, yeah Uh, that book is fascinating actually because um particularly in the post exercise window uh, a lot of people um might have assumed that you needed to 
carb up post post exercise or maybe uh, get a lot of protein post exercise but in fact what they're talking about is saying no you need fat post exercise because you don't want to um you you don't want to create inflammation markers directly after exercise you want to be able to yes ride Mm -hmm. on that fat burning zone as much as possible that's that's really interesting um, and that's not something that I've experimented with too much. But, uh, yeah, that book has got a lot of revolutionary type ideas where you go, ah, that makes more sense than the one that I was using. <laughs> yeah, and I feel they have to update it because there have been a few studies that Jeff Bullock has put out, um, like one in 2016, where they're actually talking uh, just very quickly that the glycogen in the muscle of athletes that have been on a ketogenic diet for a long, long time, like we're talking definitely more than four weeks. We're talking about like average of nine months. They replenish glycogen at the same degree and speed as regular carb uh, athletes. So that's wow. that's very important to also point out. Is that, the, is that the fastest study? And I think Ben Greenfield might have been one of the... Yes, uh, it is. It. Uh, and I think Zach better too. Um, yeah, this oh. study is... Um, came out from that big consortium study. Like this one paper that I was talking about came from that Mm. study. Interesting, interesting. Very, very, very awesome. And all of these will be in the show notes of the podcast if you're listening. Um, And so I was a musician for a very long time uh, and I love love hearing people's musical choice. (laughs) Do you have a favorite musician or a playlist or a genre or something that really gets you moving? So what sort of music do you prefer oh man you got me there um (laughs) so i'm kind of boring and when i when i go work out for example i i have this playlist that has been sort of on repeat and every month or so i changed music (laughs) but um i feel that it really depends on my mood and i feel this is like a very common answer um if i'm going to be like working hard and and doing these like explosive movements i like listening to edm so like electronic dance music um when i am reading something or trying to focus i i actually don't mind like to listen to electronic music either it just gets me like in a trance (laughs) Hmm. um but i really in general i like all genres really um so it just really depends on the mood um but if you ask me for working out, I like EDM, like very pumped, pumped up music. <laughs> I, I like that. And I like it d- that it depends on the mood. Like uh, I was talking about that we moved house just recently and we had two Brazilian guys uh, help help us move house. And they, um, when they pulled up the truck, they were playing br- Brazilian music. And I thought, oh, that, that just sounds so awesome. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and there was uh, one, of, uh, one of our friends, he's also Brazilian, and he was saying Brazilian funk. Um, is is something that can be like very very dirty. It's like very dirty music, <laughs> but but it sounds normal. And so I was like, I wonder if that was the music that I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I go to Mexico, I listen to like Mexican music because like, that's yeah. also what I grew up with. So I mean, it really depends. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Yeah, no, that's really awesome. Um, and so. At the end of the podcast, I love asking a big overarching question. And that is, you know, for people who maybe want to achieve similar results with, uh, for instance, uh, we can go two different pathways and I'll let you choose which one you want to answer. But if, if someone has uh, a son or a daughter who has epilepsy or they're struggling with epilepsy themselves, what would be the first thing that they could do to help um, rectify that issue using the ketogenic diet? Or 
if someone wants to transition into being a low carb or ketogenic athlete, what would be the first thing that they uh, would do to sort of transition into that period as well? Um, so for the first one, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a doctor yet, so I, I can't really give any medical advice. Um, but if, if anybody listening uh, that is very curious about this and wants to chat about this, uh, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. Um, having said that, I'll go to the athlete question. Um, so the question was, what should they do or what should they first do if they want to transition into the low carb? Is that what you said? What do you ask? Yeah. So if someone's interested in the ketogenic diet for performance purposes, what would be the first thing that you would suggest? Or maybe some of the common, uh, we, t- we spoke about some of the common hurdles, but, but what's that first stepping stone for someone looking to get into that space um i feel because uh, I've, I've given this advice before and, and and i've tailored it to the the type of person i'm talking to if they're the kind that's like i'm all in i'll just go cold turkey and quick carbs that day um more power to them it'll be a quicker transition <laughs> but if they rather you know take it easy and they're really 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 stuck to their rice and their bread and their cookies you want to make it something that seems achievable for them. So I'll start with like, all right, well, how about you start tracking what you eat? If you, if this person doesn't track yet, I, I would have them start tracking and then see, all right, well, you consume these many carbs. Let's start by removing 100 grams of carbs a week. So in other words, a slow transition. Um, so it really depends on the personality of the person. They could either go go cold turkey or just slowly, you know, remove carbs. Mm, that's really awesome. That's really great uh, information there too, because uh, that applies to pretty much everything with the ketogenic diet. If you're someone who wants to go cold turkey, more power to you. Um, but just keep in mind that uh, it's it. You may feel like uh, crap. There will be a few. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there will be a few rocky turns in that in that sort of process. Whereas if you want to, you know, go down slowly. And that's fine too. And there are so many people who, um, you know, don't want to take it super quickly. They just want to be able to do it slowly. And, and you know, it's important to meet someone where they're at, where, you know, they might be having five fast food dinners a week. And you say, okay, well, let's make that three. And then the week after, let's make that two. And then the week after, let's make that one. And that slow transition is, is often more sustainable for those people. And so if you're an athlete and you're eating 350 grams of carbs a day, then going to zero is going to be a huge shock to your system. (laughs) So maybe switching that down to being a low-carb athlete where you can eat up to 150 grams of carbs a day and slowly transitioning down as you need to. Um, Yeah, that's fantastic. And just be patient. Like, just just write it out. You'll get better. Like, people, athletes get scared when they see their numbers go down, but it's worth it. That's yeah, that's exactly right. And so if people do want to reach out and contact you, uh, what's your Instagram handle? Where can people get in contact with you uh, and maybe talk a little bit about more of what we've spoken on the podcast here? Um, Yeah, so I'm mostly active on Instagram. So it's my handle is a like the letter a Frida Tehran. So it's a F R I D A. T-E-R-A-N, and I'm guessing we'll add this to the show notes. Um, and uh, yeah, so you can reach out through, uh, through Instagram and I'll always answer that same that same day. <laughs> 
that's awesome and that's initially how we connected too yeah so, uh yeah <laughs> that's fantastic so it's been really awesome having you on the podcast Frida I really appreciate your time because I know time is probably the most precious commodity these days uh and so uh, and and I hope uh, from all of the listeners of the fat weight loss show I really um really appreciate you having you know having all of your knowledge that you do and being able to share that with us so i really appreciate your time no thank you for inviting me this was fun i feel we could go for hours <laughs> definitely definitely let's do another one just on each of the different topics <laughs> yeah <laughs> sounds like a plan sounds fantastic well if you do uh, jump on an instagram go and follow Frida at the link in the show notes um, and drop her a message and say, hey, look, I've been listening to you on the on the Fat Boy at Lost Show. I've really appreciated the interview. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe maybe say I was really interested in the in the endurance stuff or maybe I was really interested in the in the epileptic stuff. And so we can uh, go from there. I think that sounds that sounds perfect. So thank you again, Frida. I really appreciate your time and um, I'm sure I'll be speaking to you soon. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved this podcast, make sure you hit subscribe to be notified next week when the podcast arrives. If you could do one small act of kindness for today, I would greatly appreciate a review from you. It's really easy and it allows me to keep making podcasts just like this one every week just for you. Head on over to fatforweightloss.com.au forward slash podcasts for the latest updates and all the show notes. Until next week.